All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles there to the book of Acts, if you haven't already. Acts chapter 18. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. After these things, he departed Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and his wife Priscilla, who recently came from Italy because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he was staying with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly bearing witness to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a God-fearer, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I am not willing to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious, holy Father and God of all mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, and amen. You can be seated. Well, church, we are a few days into the new year, and I'm looking forward to all that God will do in our midst as we seek to faithfully worship Him and live for His, his glory. Uh, First Corinthians has been on the back burner for a couple of years, so I thought I would move it to the front, uh, as 2024 will undoubtedly confront us with opportunities for greater faith and greater obedience. Uh, I think, personally, this letter will be very timely for us. Uh, one common commentator said, if you want to break apart a church, just go and study 1 Corinthians. And so I'm thinking that uh, this will do the opposite effect with us here. Uh, let us draw together and see what it is that Christ has for us. And I say that because part of the reason for doing this is pastoral. Uh, the church in Corinth struggled with a litany of things, and if we're honest, all churches struggle with them in one degree or another. 
Uh, there's this idea out there that there is a perfect church and, and people will say, well, if you find one, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Uh, and that's because we all are on a journey of sanctification. Um, but they struggled with things. And if we're honest, we struggle with things, uh, whether it's personally, individually, as families, we struggle. And as churches, we all struggle with various and face various uh, things like this. Anytime we have recovering sinners training for sainthood and awaiting glory, gathering together like this, things are abound to get interesting, and Corinth was certainly no, no different. Therefore, I think it wise for us to wrestle with the cultural and ethical questions that they did. Things like divisions in the church and how to be unified. Uh, what to think of the centrality of the cross not just as we think about, wow, the cross is a great thing, and then we walk away from it. But what is the centrality of, cross, of the cross in our lives, and how does that work? Um, ethical standards for sexuality. They had issues in Corinth. There are ethical standards. How do we navigate those in a culture like ours? Um, living Christianly in a pagan world. That's why it's timely. <laughs> uh, proper celebration of the Lord's Supper. The Corinthians had problems with the Lord's Supper and how they were doing that, which we'll get to later on in, in the series. There were questions about men and women and men and women in leadership in the church. There were questions about how to use spiritual gifts correctly. Uh, the important practice, the most important practice of love, properly defined, love in chapter 13 is considered the crescendo in many ways of human expression. Love is meant to be the thing that we do. We live in love and we give love, that sort of thing. Uh, the other issues that they had to face was the climax of God's work in Christ, which was the resurrection of Jesus. That is chapter 15. So everything's building to chapter 15 with this huge 53 verse long exploration of resurrection. And there were confusion, there was confusion on whether the resurrection had happened or not, and Paul needed to address that as well. The infection that spread in the Corinthian church had much to do with social and spiritual status in the community. That was the infection that spread. Social and spiritual status in the community. Possessing uh, social status was considered, in this cultural environment, the greatest thing one could pursue. And I always uh, noticed that when, when I was uh, going to Bible college and seminary in Philadelphia, I worked for a social work uh, company, and we did social work throughout all of the city. And I remember going into a home with a single mom with several kids who couldn't pay her bills, um, but man, she had full-blown cable package, the iPhone, and you're just thinking, man, maybe your priorities aren't where they should be. But then you kind of walk through the hood and you see, you know, fancy rims and uh, brand new Nike sneakers that cost $200. And it's all social status stuff. And so the Corinthians dealt with that, and we deal with that today as well. But that then was, and it is now, a great thing to pursue, social status, the, the, having people like you. Having people think highly of you, that was the Corinthian culture. Now, in order to overcome these divisions and these difficulties, the Corinthians are told, and so are we, to embody the cross each and every day. The cross is something we are to embody. 
Uh, we are to look back to the resurrection of Christ and what that means, and we look forward to the resurrection and renewal of all things. So in short, Paul was after cruciformity. I don't know if you've heard that word before, but cruciformity, living a cross-shaped life. We're Christians. It's in the name. We follow Christ. Our Christ, our Messiah, was crucified. So what does that look like? We'll talk more about that later. The question that looms large over the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and, and the question here in Acts, is this. What does it mean in the nitty-gritty pains of everyday life together for us to be in Christ, for us to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit? And that is what we must discover. Now, our focus this morning will be Paul's initial arrival in Corinth, as it's told by Luke, Luke being the author of Acts. And before we dig into that, I want to simply outline the book for you, because we'll dig in, Lord willing, right away next week. So here, here's kind of how the book works. And the whole, the whole letter, the book of 1 Corinthians, is a chiasm. And chiasm is a literary device where you sort of bring up a topic deal with another one, get to your central topic, and then come back to this, and they match each other. So think of it like A, B, C, and then you have B, A again. And you always are tying these things together. We don't typically write like that in the Western world. We tell stories with beginning, middle, end, and they talk about beginning, middle, beginning. And the end is the whole package deal. So we think a little bit differently in our culture, but that's how much of Scripture they have these interlocking connection, connection points. And the latter chapters work that way too, and we'll get there. So the, ch the whole book is 16 uh, chapters, and chapters 1 through 4, Paul centers the whole thing about the cross and Christian unity. Here's the cross of Christ. It's, it's folly, right, to the, to the world. Um, it's an offense to the Jews, folly to the Greeks. But this is the centrality of, of the cross, and that's where our unity is found. That unity that's been given to us is already there. And then he switches in chapters 4 through 7, and he writes about men and women in, in this human family. And then in chapters 8 through 10, that's the center of the letter. Paul discusses food offered to idols and what to do about that. And then he kind of circles back in chapters 11 through 14, and he brings up men and women again, and he talks about men and women in the context of, of worship. And he deals with what happens when we gather together. And when they gathered together, what problems did they face? And there's a lot of historical context to those chapters that we'll dig into when we get there. And then in chapter 15, you have the resurrection. And in chapter 16, sort of the goodbyes. But chapter 15 is the resurrection. And so if you think about it, the book begins and ends with the cross at the beginning and the resurrection at the end. So they're tied together. And then Paul deals with men and women as it relates to just simply being men and women in, in our families and ethics that are involved in that. But then he talks about men and women in worship. So those chapters go together. And then, of course, uh, in the middle of it is how Christians are to live in a pagan culture. What, do, what are we allowed to do? What shouldn't we do? Those sorts of things. So that's the letter. Let's look at the book of Acts. Now, in verse 1, we find that Paul left Athens. Paul left Athens there. He was there in chapter 17. And it was there he had seen the altar to the unknown God. You can read that another time. He heads 53 miles west to the city of Corinth. 
Now, D.C. is about 45 miles from here. So it's a couple-day journey on foot, but he goes essentially from D.C. to out our way. That's Athens to Corinth. Um, I'm not suggesting that D.C. is Athens, but maybe it is. It's more like Babylon. But nonetheless, Corinth, he arrives to Corinth. Corinth is a wealthy tourist destination. Uh, it's a strategic lo location on the Isthmus. It's a, uh, you have a land lock connection there with a small strip of, of land in between. You can look on your, if you have a Bible with maps, you can kind of see that if you can look that up later. The Isthmus was a trade route uh, between Asia and Italy. It went, everything went through Corinth, and so seaports on the east and the west meant lots and lots of money. So that's why Corinth was such a wealthy place. Moreover, every two years you had the Isthmian Games, which was a big deal, and those games were second only to, we know them today, the Olympic Games. So every two years in Corinth, in that era, you had another sort of mini Olympic Games go on. And I bring that up because Paul got to Corinth around 49 or 50 A.D., so he probably got there after the games of 49 AD were over. And then, you know, depending on his arrival, he might have been there when they were starting the, the, the games again in, in AD 51. So athletic competition was huge in, in that area. The population of Corinth was somewhere between 50 to 80,000 people. There's not a lot of consensus because we don't know. We have to excavate archaeology sites and figure out, okay, how many houses are here? What was the shopping center like? And there's a lot that goes into it. And not all of Corinth has been excavated either. But much, and I'll mention this later, but some of the stuff that's there uh, was there then is still there today after 2,000 years. Uh, but Corinth was a transient place, a burgeoning place, much like Northern Virginia is. People are always in and out, coming in, leaving, government contracts, you name it. So Corinth was kind of much like our area, although obviously smaller in size. The citizens of Corinth, they were upwardly mobile, and everyone was looking to better themselves on the socioeconomic ladder. You went to Corinth to make more money, to make more business contacts. You went there to try to better your family, to better your life, and you wanted social status, as I mentioned previously. In terms of history, the, uh, the city was destroyed by Rome in 146 BC, but 100 years later, Julius Caesar himself established Corinth as a Roman colony. That was around 44. So, Corinth was lively by the time Paul got there, around 50 A.D., but it had only really been a city for about six years at that point. It, it became very quickly a popular place to, to be. Now, Roman Corinth, we can call it that, was, cosmic, was a cosmopolitan, international, political, and economic center, and a vibrant one at that. It was a powerhouse for all of these things. And because of these conditions, social and economic competition was fierce. Think the chaos of, on Wall Street. <laughs> it was a busy, busy place. People bustling, doing their work, trying to make money, trying to sell whatever they could. The religious posture, however, was pluralistic. Uh, Corinth had a, a temple of Apollo, a temple of the cults of Rome, a, a, a temple for the cult of the emperor and the senate. Um, it had a massive theater for the arts, which was a big deal in Greek culture. 
Uh, it had a fountain dedicated to Poseidon, and it had a very large agora. An agora is a marketplace where people would buy and sell. So that there was a lot happening there. Much of Corinth, as I mentioned, is excavated, and you can go there and you can see the agora. You can see the marketplace. You can walk through there and see the Acrocorinth in the background. You can see so many of these sites, the Temple of Apollo, part of the columns are still standing. Uh, there's much to, to enjoy there historically. Now, religiously, the Greek and Roman gods took center stage. They were the, the central focus, but you had plenty of options to choose from. Pick your god. <laughs> That's sort of the uh, pluralistic culture of the day. Wealthy Corinth, as it has been called, was a prime place for Paul's second missionary endeavors. This is Paul's second of three missionary journeys. Um, idolatry and immorality were rampant. It was a strategic place for the aforementioned reasons. And, and there was work. There was a lot of work. So it was a strategic place for Paul to go because there was work. And that's why he stayed there 18, 18 months. Paul didn't stay at places a whole lot of the times. He stayed in Syrian Antioch for one year. He stayed 18 months in Corinth. And in Ephesus, he was there, according to Acts 20, he was there three years, which is a long time. So the letter was written from Ephesus, which we'll talk about, Lord willing, next week. But he was in Ephesus for three years, but a year and a half he was there in Corinth with, with his newfound friends. Now, one more thing should be noted about Corinth as a city, the well-known and popularly used Greek verb to live like a Corinthian meant to act like a prostitute. So when you have people in, in, these, in this culture, there was a verb that they literally would, would chastise people with is, ah, you live like a Corinthian. So, you know, lots of immorality, lots of sexual deviancy, lots of uh, idolatry, you name it. But that's why they were, were quite popular. Now, for, fornication and sexual sin was ubiquitous. It was everywhere, which is why Paul ends up dealing with the topic in the letter. He just has to deal with it. Imagine Paul writing a letter to the church in America and not dealing with Pride Month. You know, that's, it's just everywhere. It's in the media. It's everywhere. So that's why he deals with it. Uh, Corinth was a place of luxury and promiscuity. It was a rehearsal of Sodom and Gomorrah. And truthfully, this is how I think of it. It was San Francisco, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, New Orleans, and New York City all rolled into one small swamp of iniquity. That was Corinth. Now, in verse 2, we see that Paul met the dynamic duo of Aquila and Priscilla. Um, Priscilla is usually mentioned first, the wife, and it's probably because she had a lot of social power, a lot of social prestige. Um, that, that may be why she's mentioned first. But they came to Corinth because the emperor Claudius had issued an order for the Jews to leave Rome. And Suetonius, who was a Roman writer, he wrote about a disturbance in Rome. Something happened in AD 49, and we don't know exactly, but Suetonius, again, a Roman pagan writer, wrote about this mysterious Crestus, which he took Christos in Greek, and he changed the, the vowel there, the I to an E, which makes sense in Latin and Roman language. So probably there's a reference about Jesus Christ and a problem in Rome as early as 49 AD. 
So there were probably tensions in the synagogue communities, a lot of tensions over, is Jesus the Messiah, is he not? People fighting, arguing, bickering, causing problems for the Romans. So Claudius says, enough, you must leave Rome. Well, Priscilla and Aquila left Rome and they went to Corinth. And in God's sovereign plan, Paul met them. Now, I should add to the uh, Nero, the famous wicked emperor Nero, he came after Claudius and he rescinded the ban in AD 54, which is probably why at some point Priscilla and Aquila ended up leaving Corinth and going back to Rome. And we know they went back to Rome because in Paul's letter to the Romans, he mentions them and greets them in chapter 16, verse 3. So they left, met Paul, ends up there, you know, Christians, believers, uh, they're funding the mission, they're, they're doing their work for the glory of God, and they end up back in Rome to strengthen the church there. At any rate, Paul meets them. Clearly, he strikes up a friendship. And in verse 3, we learn that they too are tent makers like Paul. Paul was a tent maker, probably learned this trade from his own father. Uh, that's just how it worked back then. Your dad taught you a trade, and that's what you did. The family business was the family business. Uh, James Jordan notes this. It was interesting. Paul is a tent maker. He's a tent maker. And we shouldn't miss this connection with another spirit-filled um, Bezalel is his name. He was a tent maker. Bezalel, he was the chief architect behind and the, and the chief craftsman for the tabernacle in Exodus. So Paul is a spirit-filled tent maker building churches. So seems to be a connection there quite probably. Because Corinth had a bustling marketplace, it was a great spot for these three to set up shop. Paul, no doubt, had tools that he took with, materials and so on. Uh, and he worked hard. They made some money. Uh, they proclaimed the gospel while doing so. But they partner together, these three, and they do the work there in Corinth. So together, Paul, with Priscilla and Aquila, formed the initial church plant team. And in verse 4, Paul reasons in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he's trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When, when you see Greeks, by the way, don't just think citizen of Greece, though that's part of it. Think these are God-fearing, uncircumcised Greeks. They were in the synagogues too. They had believed that the Jewish God was the God of all. They had believed on Yahweh. So he's persuading Jews and Greeks uh, in verse 5, Silas and Timothy, friends of Paul, show up with a gift, uh, and that gift was no doubt a financial donation. And Paul goes, essentially it frees Paul to devote himself completely to the Word. And verse 5, solemnly bearing witness to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So he gets, they get money, now, now he can dedicate his time to church planting he does that. Paul's a man with a mission, right? Declare the word of God in all places to the Jew first, then to the Greek. But how receptive were the members of the synagogue? Well, not very receptive. Verse 6 tells us they resisted the word, even going so far as blaspheming, making fun of Christ, making fun of Jesus, blaspheming him. Uh, the language here, by the way, is it, it implies military action against Paul. Paul's preaching the gospel in the synagogue, and they are militarily fighting against him. So he shakes out his garments. Nehemiah did the same thing. He shakes the dust off of his feet and his clothing, 
which is a sign of absolving oneself of responsibility. I'm done here. Paul says, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean for now. I will go to the Gentiles. Now, in order, the, the order is this. Jew, Greek, Gentile. Okay, Jew, Greek, Gentile. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, rest of the world. Or think of it this way. Paul goes to the circumcised Jew, the uncircumcised but God-fearing Greek, and then he goes out to the utter pagan. And this matches Eden and the tabernacle temple complex. You have the Holy of Holies. You have the holy place. You have the outer courts. Same thing, we have the Garden of Eden, which is in the land of Eden, and then you have the rest of the world. There's a threefold story here in Scripture. So Paul moves on because of their obstinance. They rejected the gospel. He's done with them. He insists that God will bring judgment against them. So in verse 7, he went to the house. By the way, this house is, is still there. A traditional, they, they believe this is um, Titius Justice. It's his house. And uh, he went to, the, to this man's house. He was a God-fearer. And he lived right next door to the synagogue. And the Greek language implies that quite literally it was right next door. So that's like if there was another building attached here and you just walk through that door, that's the synagogue, here's his house. So Paul moves in and they plant their church there. It was here in his house where the new Christian church gathered for worship. That's where they gathered together every Sunday, every Lord's Day to praise God for his work in Christ. Now in verse 8, <laughs> Crispus, he is the great name for a kid, by the way, Crispus. Uh, power name. Power name. Crispus, he was the leader of the synagogue. He apparently converts and comes to Christ with, with all of his household. And uh, that had to have started a ripple effect. Because imagine Crispus says, Yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's baptized. And the guys next door are like, Well, we lost our leader of the synagogue. He became a Christian. Maybe there's something to this. So Crispus is there. We know that Paul, there's a baptism problem in early on in 1 Corinthians, but Paul says, look, I baptized Crispus. He's mentioned in the 1 Corinthians 1.14. So Paul baptized Crispus after he converts. And right next to the synagogue, there in his house, there was singing and rejoicing. There was preaching and prayer. There was, they were partaking of the Lord's Supper, which is the true memorial meal. And no doubt, the Jews and the Greeks next door heard and saw what was going on, and they were evangelized because of it. Imagine being next door and hearing Christians sing, you know, the Son of God goes forth to war. I'm sure they sang that hymn. It wasn't written yet, but maybe they did. And you're listening to all of this, and you're in the synagogue wondering, what are these? These people are full of joy and passion. This is crazy. This is chaotic. Well... They were evangelized, many of them were, but others were feeling quite riotous about it. And in a vision, we're told here in verse 10, Jesus reminds Paul not to be afraid. And the assumption here is that Paul was definitely a human like us, and he was afraid. Tension was rising. You could feel it. And he was probably afraid for what would happen. But Jesus comes in a vision and says, don't be afraid. Nobody's going to lay hand on you. I want you to keep preaching, for I have many people in this city. Great verse. God knows His chosen ones. And we labor precisely because we do not know who they are. God has His people. 
Now, in verse 11, Paul was there 18 months teaching the Word of God, a year and a half teaching and preaching and evangelizing, but all wasn't pure bliss. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and by the way, the region of Achaia is the Peloponnesian region. Uh, so you have the Peloponnesian, which the Peloponnesian Wars happened a couple centuries before. But you have this area that Gallio was in charge of that connected to the mainland of the rest of the Grecian Empire. So he's in charge of that area. And the Jews want Paul to be silenced, so they bring him to Gallio for examination and judgment. They're tired of it. That's just happened in Athens, by the way. Same thing. In verse 13, they bring their charge. This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And of course they thought that. Some of what the Christians were doing next door was borrowed from the synagogue model, but some of it was from the temple. The Christians believed that they were part of what Israel's God was now doing in the world through Jesus. To the contrary, the Jews were angry and said that Jesus is an imposter. The same thing many people today, including Ben Shapiro, think about Jesus. But before Paul could open his mouth, Gallio already knew what was going on. The crime wasn't all that serious in verse 14. In verse 15, if they had a problem, they needed to work it out according to their own customs. Gallio doesn't want to deal with this. This is just an in-house thing. We don't need to deal with this. And Gallio, who probably shared a spiteful disposition towards the Jews, like his Roman friends had done, he didn't want to judge the case, so in verse 16 he sent them away. And he, he assumed that this Christianity thing is just a weird sect of the Jewish thing that was already going on, and it wasn't really a real threat. So he doesn't even want to hear the case. Now, Roman leaders, once again, rather unwittingly, protect the gospel going forward. This is a theme in Acts. The Romans continue to uh, not have the agenda against Paul like many of the Jews and some of the Greeks had. And it wasn't, it wasn't until word really got out that the real king is Jesus and not Caesar that things heated up in the Roman world. Now, enraged, we meet Sosthenes, another great name for your son, the leader of the synagogue with Crispus. We have another leader there. Uh, the Jews come along, perhaps others, perhaps some of the God-fearing Greeks that hated Jesus. They angrily beat Sosthenes, say that five times fast. But Gallio wasn't concerned about any of that either. Now, Sosthenes, he shows up in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 1. He is with Paul in Ephesus, and they're writing a letter. So his life changed too. You have two leaders in the synagogue who convert to Christianity, and that is the start of this church. So obviously he stayed true to Jesus. He traveled with Paul. And I also want to give you a side note, just a little fun historical tidbit here. Nero would later execute Gallio. And... Gallio had a famous brother, and it was, his name was Seneca. You've probably heard of him. Uh, Seneca was hired to be Nero's personal tutor, but Nero was a paranoid psychopath. So, you know, he killed many Christians, but he also killed his own people. So he put Gallio to death as well as Seneca. So as is usually the case, the beginnings of a church plant can have its challenges. Finances, personalities, external social pressures, 
varying degrees of conviction, all of these things show up. And Paul, he basically faced tremendous opposition, but he remained resolute. So, how shall we then live? The Nicene Creed of AD 325 speaks of one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Three centuries earlier, the Apostle Paul was committed to the very same thing. One church unified by one spirit in one Lord before one father. A church that is holy, that is being countercultural or alter-cultural, providing an alternative culture. Paul believed in a church that was Catholic, meaning it was, it was welcoming people with various and diverse backgrounds, both rich and poor, and not prizing the rich over the poor. The church was for everyone, truly, and not in the liberal Methodist way. Um, it was a place where spiritual gifts are to be used in connection with the uh, larger global church of God. Uh, a church that is apostolic. Paul invites the Corinthians to mimic his Christ-like behavior, and he aligns this church, as all churches should be aligned, with the apostolic faith that was delivered to the apostles. So it's interesting that in 325, this is Pauline theology coming out in the Nicene Creed. Now, what we find here in Acts is a missional man. He's a missional man, a man with a mission. He works diligently for the sake of the gospel of King Jesus. He is resolute, and diligence is absolutely and unequivocally required in a postmodern, consumeristic-oriented, pluralistic culture. You have to be committed to the gospel. You must be committed to the gospel. And we find out in the world of today the very same things that Paul found, varying degrees of public idolatry, social pressure in the name and the form of CRT, uh, sexual licentiousness, you name it, wokeism as some people call it. Um, there's a lot of social pressures there. Um, we find the state even more involved in everyday affairs of its citizenry. Um, I, I think today what our centralized government has done would, is far more than Rome could have ever dreamed of. In other words, any culture that dismisses the total and all-encompassing rule and reign of Jesus Christ will always prefer autonomous living. If it isn't Christ Jesus in a culture, it isn't nothing. It's everything but Christ. It's idolatry, rampant idolatry. So we face the same thing that Paul had faced. And we simply have to mimic Paul and believe that the gospel can be established in even the most difficult of places. Let me say this again, because I tell you, I think sometimes we are given to unbelief when we consider the Western world and the social condition we find ourselves in. We must believe that the gospel can be established in even the most difficult of places. You have to believe that. If you don't believe that, you have surrendered. You have thrown the white flag in the air and you have given up. Even today, with how wicked and idolatrous our culture is, you have to believe the gospel can be established. It can be. Paul was one man walking into a city of tens of thousands of people, and he had the belief the gospel can be established here. We have to have the same belief. 
And I tell you, it looks really bad here. Uh, a federal government that hates Christianity, and more and more, it seems like, every day. Uh, we have a culture that prefers diabolical sexual ethics. Uh, we have many churches filled with idolatry and false doctrine. What can we do? When we, when we are honest and sober about reflecting on the condition of our culture, <laughs> well, let's be so, sober about it. It, it. it is bad, but what can we do? Well, one thing we can do is start judging with righteous judgment, which is something that Paul will equip the Corinthians to do. We can stop looking at how dangerous things are and start believing that the sin-crushing cross of Christ and the victory-establishing resurrection of Christ are the very tools needed to overcome such unbelief. It is the spirit incapable of defeating, defeating a sin-sick heart. Is the Spirit incapable of that? Does the Spirit of God not raise men from death to life? And Paul could have easily collapsed under the weight of idolatrous Athens, giving up on his mission, but he kept going. I mean, he got to Athens, and it was just idolatry threw up everywhere. Sorry for the visual. But that's what it was. And he could have said, well, this is really bad. But he proclaimed... Christ, you, know, this, you worship this unknown God, but let me tell you who this God is. And they drag him before the courts too, and you know, he ends up leaving and goes 53 miles west to Corinth. Same situation on a smaller scale. Athens was, of course, the center of Grecian culture, but at that point it hadn't had the influence it used to have. But he goes to Corinth, one man with the gospel, and what does he do? He keeps going. And sometimes you just have to keep going. Sometimes you just have to keep going. When, we're, when arriving to Corinth, he could have easily saw the idols and decided to turn the other way. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. To the degree that I'm following Jesus Christ, you follow me, Paul says. What an exhortation. Imitate Christ. What Christ did, you do. Follow Christ, in other words. Follow him. But where is Christ going? Well, he is going into the world and all of the world. Um, Paul's, think of it. How do we get there, though? How do we, how do we get there? Well, Paul's, Paul's tent-making efforts was his occupation. Um, it helped pay the bills, buy food, clothing, those sort of basic things. And his apostleship, though, was his calling from Christ. He had an occupation, but what was his calling? And I would argue that all of you, we have varying differences in occupation, but we all have the same calling, do we not? And I love what Gary North says. It's helpful. He defines calling as the most important thing a person can do in which he is most difficult to replace. Now, obviously, ultimately, Christ alone is irreplaceable. All of us are replaceable, as much as we like to think otherwise. But when the Lord calls us, He gives us a desire to be obedient to Christ in that arena. And few people identify uh, their callings, opting instead to work a job, pay the bills, and that's all there is to life. And if somebody asks you, well, why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Well, it pays the bills, puts food, food on the table. No, but why do you do what you do? Because I have a calling to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. That's why I wake up early and go to work and, and work my fingers to the bone. 
That's your calling. The calling supports the occupation. But if we're following Christ, we need to develop that calling in the kingdom. And sometimes the two function together and overlap, but other times the one is a means to the ends of another. You're not working to put food on the table for your family, ultimately. You're working because Christ has called you to it. That's the primary motivation. And that's how you find joy. And Paul will say that at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15. Know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So when you go to your job, so-called secular job, right? Your occupation that pays the bills. You go as an ambassador, not as somebody who just has a family to feed. That's the mindset that we need to have here but either way, we are all responsible for obeying Christ, obeying Christ in our homes, in our churches, and in the world. And the thing we learn from this passage, which sets us up for our study of 1 Corinthians, is that Christians are called to be countercultural and altercultural. They are called to countercultural cruciformity. Altercultural cruciformity. <coughs> it is clear from the example of Paul and even Priscilla and Aquila, that God works to spread the gospel message despite what may appear to be enormous setbacks and unrelenting adversity. God works in those moments. God works in the difficulties. Paul is deeply troubled. Apparently, he was very afraid to the point where Christ comes to him in a vision and says, I have people in this city. Don't you give up. I have people here. You keep going. You keep preaching. You keep speaking. You keep living for the, my glory, Jesus says. And rather than seeing these events in, in real time as being obstacles to walk around, we should be seeing them as paths to tread upon with faith. It's like this in our culture, especially with some of our younger generation, it's like any amount of adversity, a life is too hard, I can't do anything, I'll just complain about it on TikTok. No, adversity is there to grow you, to shape you. It's not necessarily something to avoid. It's something to walk through. You have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You don't just sit down and cry. Though maybe there's a place for sitting down and crying. And there, indeed there is. But the gospel can and it does make headway in cultures of iniquity. Christ has his people. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the wisdom of God which shames the wisdom of men. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to be shaped by the cross. We need to be shaped by the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ, which was so central to Paul's thinking, is not simply a fact to reflect upon, but a power to be compelled by. It's not a fact to reflect upon. Oh, yeah, that's right. Jesus did die. And every Good Friday, we just, you know, like any other holiday, we just sit and we think about, oh, yeah, that was a good thing. I'm glad Jesus died for me. That is true. It's a good thing that Jesus died for you. But that's not the only thing. It is the power that compels you into the world. And it doesn't merely function as a source of salvation. It's the shape of our salvation. We take up our cross because this gift that he has given us is also a demand. Self-denial is cruciformity. Self-giving love and sacrifice is cruciformity. Obedience to God, no matter the consequences, is cruciformity. The resurrection life that we will enjoy later must be marked by cruciform living today. So what will your commitment look like? 
Are people able to tell that Christ's kingdom is your commitment? Can people tell that? You know, what's, what's, your, uh, what's your obituary going to say sort of thing? Unrelenting pursuit of the gospel of the kingdom. What does Christ-likeness really mean? In what ways do you need to rearrange your life so as to be found secure in imitating Christ in this way? See, what we learn from Paul is that the gospel message of our crucified but risen and reigning king touches the root of man, the heart. Civil rulers cannot do this. Civil rulers cannot do this. They can just lie to you. But they can't touch the heart. Idols already touch the heart. That's where idols come from. The heart is a factory of idolatry, Calvin says. But the gospel of Jesus fills the human heart with love and joy and faith in this king. And when we announce it to the world, Christ gathers his people by his spirit. Legislation doesn't touch the heart. Political leaders do not touch the human heart, no matter how winsome they may be. Only the gospel escorts the idols out of the heart and puts the love of God in its place. Now, the, the, there's a lot of tension here with politics and religion. And we'll deal with that as we go through the letter. But the goal of Christianity is political. Don't let anybody lie to you. The goal is very, very political. We worship King Jesus. We worship King Jesus, a king who demands everything from everyone in every area. But it is... But, that's the goal, but it, the method isn't primarily one of politics, but faith working through love. Faith comes by hearing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Faith comes by hearing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want to just, we'll wrap up here, but Paul will summarize the Christian faith throughout the letter, and he's going to focus on things like the cross. But we preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 1.23. He, talk, he talks about the cross. He talks about grace. What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He talks about God. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. He's going to talk about the mission. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have... Become all things to all men so that I might be all, by all means, save some. 1 Corinthians 9.22 Cross, grace, God, mission, love. He talks about love. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13.13 13. He talks about the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 2 through 4. And he also talks about hope in this letter. Hope. The last enemy to be abolished is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Paul shows us what calling and commitment looks like. He shows us what a life of worship and obedience looks like. And despite our very real and terrifying fears, Christ has us and he has his people no one can stop the christian church no one gospel church mission that's the nuts and bolts of first corinthians lord willing we'll start in the first three verses next week let's pray 
Father in heaven, we glorify you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what we learn here from it. And I pray that you would put that word in our hearts as we go forth this week to serve you. Help us to hear what it is you require of us so that we might live obedient unto you. We ask for your blessing now with word and now sacrament. We pray that you would be glorified in our worship. In Christ's name, amen.